Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast, bridging the gap between Jewish leaders and those who follow them. Gain insight from Jewish professionals who make the decisions that influence your Jewish world. Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. My guest tonight is Ruthie Warshenbrot, who is the program director at the Wexner Foundation, working mostly with the Wexner Field Fellowship. And previous to her work at the Wexner Foundation, she's worked with Prepare the World, Ben the Ark, AGWS. She's worked on a Jewish Communal Professional Survey and was the recipient of the 2009 Jewish Communal Service Association's Young Professional Award. She was also worked with Lumu New York for a number of years and finished up as their executive director there. And one of the reasons that I wanted to bring Ruthie on today was was because the Wexner Foundation has a reputation in our field and the reputation I know of it is very limited and I wanted to get a professional's perspective on the work that the Wexner Foundation does and how that impacts or has impacted the Jewish community as a whole. So thank you so much for joining us, Ruthie. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Let's start talking about you. How did you come to be so involved with the Jewish communal world and have so much sort of wide-ranging experience and like a lot of social justice, networking, and communal organizations. So as with most people, I often say that my Jewish journey professionally started with summer camp. My parents are Israeli, and I went to a young Judea camp, Camp Judea in Hendersonville, North Carolina. There I learned that other people cared about Israel too, that it wasn't just where my grandparents lived, but it was actually the Jewish homeland. And I was sort of intrigued by that and loved it. And I loved summer camp and I loved Israeli dancing and I loved singing Israeli songs and Israeli music. And that, along with being in BBYO in high school, were two really formative parts of my sense of self as a Jewish person. And one thing that both my camp and BBYO had in common, as do all of the places that I have worked, is that they were pluralistic settings. And I just found myself drawn to places where I could be with different types of Jews. So when I got to college, it was obvious for me to go to Hillel, another great pluralistic organization. And I immediately wanted to get involved with the Israel group at Hillel. And I went to their first meeting, really ready to reflect back to my camp days and do Israeli dancing and sing songs. And they were writing letters to their congressmen. And I felt totally unprepared. I did not know what that was about. Even though my parents were Israeli and the news was on all the time, I just all of a sudden realized that I had this emotional connection, but not an intelligent connection. Like I didn't understand. And that really led me on a journey that's continued throughout my professional career of making sure that education is at the root of everything that I do. And as a student at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, When I set out to solve this problem of caring about Israel but not understanding Israel, I partnered with my Hillel director at the time, Or Mars, who is now my supervisor at the Wexner Foundation. So there's a little sneak preview to what's up ahead. And together we built a program called the Bina Initiative, which was for Jewish students and faculty to explore their connection to Israel through history, through religion, through art, through culture. It was pluralistic, it was a safe space, and it was the first time I applied for a grant. We got funds for it from Hillel International through the Avichai Foundation. And subsequently, the program was so popular that Hillel actually replicated it on other campuses. And it became like a core part of what I had done. And I realized that there was a field of Jewish communal service. 
My mom also is a Jewish professional. She worked in our community library in Charlotte, North Carolina. So I had this idea that there was more out there. I got an internship at Hillel International through these connections that came about from creating that program, applying for the grant and it being replicated. And that summer internship, I credit with really being an investment in my future in this career. I want to say this because I think it's important, especially for younger professionals and people who are still in college, was that I did get paid a very modest amount. And I remember my parents sort of saying to me, like, you can come home and get a real job, but if you're going to do something like this, you need to support yourself. So I had saved all this money from babysitting and I spent the summer in DC where my rent was more than what I was getting paid. And it was a privilege to be able to do that. And I know that a lot of people can't do that. And whenever somebody asks me, I say that you have to pay people for their work. It really was important. And I did get a stipend for that summer, but DC is an expensive city. Yeah, I was going to say that my first internship in the Jewish communal world through my college had a $1,000 stipend for the year that was provided by some awesome family that paid for it. And that was, was able to say okay to that and not some other job. I think it matters. It makes a difference. And we know about this in other fields as well, where people have the opportunity whose parents are willing to support them to do a free internship that unlevels the playing field. Mm -hmm. So I went that summer, I met professionals that I'm still in touch with to this day. And I really got a sense of what it was like to be in a major Jewish organization, one that up until that point, I had only experienced as a student on campus. And following that, I had the great honor of being one of the students on Hillel's board of directors while I was still an undergrad. And I just want to mention this as well, because one of the things that I got to do in that position was visit other Hillel's on accreditation visit. I don't know if Hillel still does this, but they had a very formal system where there would be a student and a staff member and a board member and a Hillel International Center member who would go to a Hillel and just kind of explore it on the inside out. And I learned so much from that experience, from seeing campuses that were really different from mine and meeting amazing professionals who really cared about what they did I know I visited Stony Brook in New York, which was just black and white from the University of North Carolina. That was a great learning experience. And when I graduated, I knew that I wanted to work in the Jewish community, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I knew that I wanted to be in a pluralistic organization because that had been such a positive part of my experience as a student at Hillel and as a kid at camp in BYO. So I started my job search. I landed an opportunity at Limud, New York, which you mentioned before. And now Limud has been around for quite a while, but then they had just had their first conference, the Conference of Jewish Learning and Culture for Jews of all ages and all backgrounds. And it's almost entirely volunteer run. So I was hired on as the second ever full-time staff person. I had no idea what I was getting myself. And you are a recent transplant to the New York area. Yes. That's its own learning curve. Absolutely. North Carolina was no different. Oh, wow. Um, That's a little different than Los Angeles. (laughs) It certainly is. So I had to learn very quickly. And Limud is truly pluralistic. And I really interacted with Jews of all backgrounds. And I like to say that I sat at the table with people that I would have never sat at the table with otherwise, metaphorically or in reality. It was great because it really matched my values, but it was also an amazing professional experience. I had the opportunity to really see the ins and outs of an organization being only the second full-time staff person. And I actually stayed there for five years. And you mentioned that I ended up as the executive director in my last two years there which if you're doing the math, I was very early in my career. I like to say that it was a unique combination of my own skill set and the circumstances of the organization. 
but it was the best learning experience that I've ever had in my life. And as I think about my passion today and the work I do today, which I'll get into in a minute, that supports people's professional development. Part of that is because I worked so closely with a board that really took a chance on me and invested in me. And they, as individuals, taught me how to do things like budget and ask for money. And they also invested in me attending classes at the Nonprofit Support Center on Supervision or at the Foundation Center on Grant Writing. Limud was also part of Bikarim at the time. I know you spoke to Aliza Mazur. And Bikarim provided a lot of professional development opportunities for me as a young executive director and also for me as a professional when I was at the organization. And I could not have run an organization at that stage in my life or career if it weren't for the fact that people around me were supporting me and investing in me to do that. At the end of my time at Limoon, New York, I decided that it was time to go to graduate school. Partially, it was just hard to figure out what the next step was, and I wanted a chance to see what else was out there. And partially, many mentors of mine had told me that I needed an advanced degree to progress in the Jewish community, and we can talk more about whether or not Mm -hmm. that's true. So I went to NYU and did the dual degree program where I got a master's of public administration and a master's of nonprofit management. I did that as a Wexner graduate fellow and also a Lisa Goldberg scholar, which was at the time a fairly new scholarship at NYU that I'm really grateful to have received. And while I was at NYU, I did explore the field a little bit. That was when I started working at Repair the World part-time and I started leading service learning trips for Jewish Funds for Justice, which has now been the ARC. And all of this was out of an effort to really figure out how social justice and education go together. And this feeling that I loved being at Limud, and Limud is about learning for the sake of learning. And I wanted to explore learning for the sake of action and making change. And I had the opportunity to do that while I was in grad school. And Repair the World also is an organization that works with all kinds of Jews and as is Ben the Ark. So those were great experiences. And when I finished grad school, I was lucky enough to get a call from the Wexner Foundation. I was in the Wexner Graduate Fellowship. There was a new opportunity to move to Columbus, Ohio and work for the foundation where my supervisor would be or Mars, who at the time was the director of the Graduate Fellowship and who was my mentor when he was my Hillel director in college. So it was a difficult decision to decide to leave New York for Columbus. But if there was anywhere I was going to take a job for, it would be to work at the Wexler Foundation. It would be to work for my mentor. So ultimately, I made that jump. And this summer, I will have been there five years. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for walking us through how you got from the beginnings to where you are now. So tell us a little bit about specifically, I know that you do work with the fellowship, but I know you also do some other stuff. So walk us through what you do at the Wexner Foundation. When I was hired, we were exploring the idea of implementing what is the program that I now run, the Wexner Field Fellowship. The Wexner Foundation invests in leadership in the North American community and Israel, primarily focusing on Israeli public service leaders, volunteer leaders in North America, and Jewish professional leaders and also a new teen service program, which I also was involved with. The main way that we've invested in Jewish professional leaders for the past 30 years has been through our Wexner Graduate Fellowship, which supports people who are going to school full-time to work in the Jewish community. And we realized that trends were changing. People weren't necessarily going to graduate school, or they were reaching a point in their career where they weren't going to go back to school, or maybe they already had a degree from another field because they used to be a lawyer, and now they're in the Jewish community. 
we wanted to reach these people. We wanted them in our network and we wanted to invest in them because they were doing great work for the Jewish community. So we incubated the field fellowship within the graduate fellowship. And when I started working at the foundation, we were accepting three field fellows a year into a class that also had 20 full-time graduate students in it. And that was a great program. And those pilot field fellows, there are 10 of them, are amazing professionals. And they laid the groundwork for the program that I now manage, which is the Wexner Field Fellowship. And we learned a lot from that pilot program, primarily that the needs of full-time professionals are different from the needs of students, that their time is much less, and that the type of professional development that they needed to do were things that they could schedule on their own time. This program, which we just accepted our first class at the end of last year, has 15 full-time professionals. It's a three-year program, which is a long time in the life. And this is all over the nation? Yes, North America. North America. Great. They're required to pursue one-on-one coaching and one-on-one Jewish study. Those are the required pieces of the program that we saw that the pilot field fellows used. And they also have additional funds for their own professional development to use how they see fit. And much like the Graduate Fellowship and our other programs, it's a cohort-based program. And that's really key to everything that we do. We bring together diverse groups of people. And that cohort becomes a learning laboratory to practice different leadership skills that they learn along the way, to try out conversations that you might want to have with Jews who are different from you. So my primary responsibility is that program, which we're just still in the process of developing because it's so new. What's the thinking behind the three-year investment? That's a great question. So we like to invest in people for a long time. Our graduate fellowship is a four-year program. Somehow two years felt too short, four years felt too long. I would say that there's something that happens in the cohort when you go through an extended period of time with people where you just get to know them in this different way. You've seen them transition through jobs or through family changes. Certain bonds form over that time. And the Wexter Foundation is committed to the people that go through its programs forever. Alumni community is very robust. We have an official requirement that you're going to work in the Jewish community for the duration of your fellowship as the fellowship is. So for the field fellowship, three more years. Right. Is there also an expectation that they're working for the same organization or there's no expectation that they're... No, our commitment is really to the individuals, not to the organizations. Right. So we are expecting people to stay in the Jewish community, but we're open to where they work and how they live out their vision for Jewish life. That's the main thing that I do. I'll just mention the Wexner Service Corps because I had the honor of being there at the beginning of that program, which was actually inspired by one of the Wexner's teenage children who saw her friends doing community service just to get their hours crossed off and wanted to see them doing something more meaningful. I had just moved to Columbus from working at Repair the World and doing service learning trips. You were there, gal. I was there in the right place at the right time to help develop a teen service learning program that launches with a trip and continues year around in Columbus. So I'm not running that program anymore, though I'm still involved and I'm going on the trip this year. Oh, very fun. Do you have any insight as far as the original thinking for why working with graduate students was what the Wexner family thought would be the place to invest time and energy in developing leaders at 
as we've mentioned, you know, are already going through a professional program. We're kind of thinking if you have any insight into why that particular cohort of people were looked at as something to develop. So I have heard a little bit about the history and I don't want to misspeak. I know that a number of different models were developed and were thought through. And I think there was a feeling that this was just a pivotal point in people's career, that the original idea was to invest in people early on. People were going to graduate school right after they finished undergrad, which is no longer really the case, I think. And they were just catching people at the start of their career. And I think still, if you're going to rabbinical school, which is a five-year program, you're often starting it earlier, but don't quote me on that. So it just seemed like a captive audience. And I think at the time, people were getting trained through graduate programs to do the work that they wanted to do in the Jewish community. And that's not exactly the way that the world is anymore. Great. So I'd love to pivot to a question that I asked an earlier guest from the Schusterman Foundation. And the sense, I know we, you kind of talked about this a little bit, the sense that I get from these kinds of programs, obviously you can't accept everyone who applies to it, is as you mentioned, kind of the difference in hierarchy of Jewish professionals, right? So in one way, you have a Jewish professional who dedicates their life to working in the Jewish world. And on the other hand, you have somebody who goes to graduate school, gets with the Wexner Foundation and gets that development work, goes and does a Schusterman Foundation Fellowship and maybe some other professional development opportunities, you know, does a year gap program with X, you know, person because as you mentioned, they can. And it feels a little bit like now you've kind of got an uneven playing field of an elite Jewish professional cohort and everybody else. And so I just love to just toss the idea around or just sort of thinking about it, how the Wexner Foundation or you and your work think about your work as not being a divider and not even being a chooser. I mean, you have to be choosy unless you're doing something that's a program for all Jewish professionals like J-Pro does. How do you think of yourself as making elite Jewish professionals the good and the bad? I think that's a great question. This is not a scalable program. The Wexner Field Fellowship is not a scalable program. There's no question that it is elite that we are highly selective. You have to be to pick only 15 people, which is how many are in the field fellowship or only 20 people, which are how many are in the graduate fellowship in order to create the type of training that we believe is essential. You know, we struggle with that, right? There's awkwardness there, but it's just not a scalable model. And so we have chosen to be highly selective and focus on a few individuals, a small scrape of the full pool in order to give a few people that really effective toolkit that we hope that they'll pass down to the rest of their organizations. I think it's hard. You know, we actually are in close partnership with the Schusterman Foundation and with other colleagues who are doing this work. And we have this conversation all the time about who's intervening at what stage for which set of professionals and how can we get more people the training. And the truth is that the obligation is not solely on these foundations. The Mm -hmm. obligation is on our field as a whole and on our organizations. That was part of why I shared that part of my story that I was deeply invested in as a professional at a small organization that had a very tiny budget, but they managed to pull money out to invest in my own professional development so that I could be a better professional there. I just believe that that was the norm and it's not a lot of it. <laughs> right. 
do not have professional development budgets, and I think they should. And I hope that as Wexner Field Fellows and Wexner Graduate Fellows go to their organizations and talk about the things they learn, they make the case for their organizations to invest in their peers and others there. I'll share one dream of mine. When someone applies for the Field Fellowship, they are required to get a letter of support signed by their organization's executive director and board chair that says, I understand that if this person is selected as a fellow, they will be out of the office this many days a year, and I will treat that as either vacation or professional development or some sort of paid time off and will not hold it against them. It's when they apply. It's not once they're accepted. Right. You don't want a situation where we accept someone and then their boss says, well, you know, I'm not really too thrilled about you being away. By the way, it's like six days a year. But still, Mm -hmm. I made the case to have that in the application stage because I thought if a hundred people are applying and a hundred executive directors and board chairs in our institutions are signing off on even one person's professional development time, maybe it will make them realize that this is something that they should care about for other people in their organizations. I get it. It's not like the most direct way to make a change. I think that there's a responsibility of our organizations to invest in their professionals and I would like to see them complementing the work that these foundations are doing that is only possible to be done well with a small group. And part of my conversation with Abby from Schusterman was the need for that synergy, right? So if you have somebody who comes into your program, but their organization is not open or willing to be accommodating to that, and they come back with all these great ideas that they want to do, but the organization says, we're not changing right now and we're not open to this, then they're going to go look for somewhere else with all their knowledge and what you're training them on. You want to make sure the place that they're working is open to that training and open to that transformation that you're doing with that professional in order for them to then express that in their work. Because if they get pushback from that, right, then not what's the point? Because obviously, it's an, as you mentioned, it's more of an individual program. But at the same time, you don't want them to feel frustrated and using the tools that you are teaching them. This is a real challenge. Change is hard. Nobody likes change. Nobody likes that person that comes back from their amazing four days away at a fully paid institute and says, I really think we need to do this differently. But one of our core leadership theories, we teach our fellows adaptive leadership, is the idea of how to use yourself to make change. Mm. And that's a skill that everybody has to learn at some point in their career. How are you going to intervene? And you have to figure out, is my organization going to be open to this or not? Can I make change in my team, even if I can't make change in the whole agency? And individuals will make those kinds of choices along the way. And I hope the change will be made. When we were dreaming about the field fellowship, I did get feedback from professionals in the field that it would be better to partner with organizations or to have some sort of way where the organization would get some funds so that they could train other colleagues around the person. The original Mule Steen program at UJA Federation had an element of that. And when I was at Limud, I actually supervised an Insight Fellow, which was a Schusterman program that only existed for one cohort, but it was an 18-month program where young professionals had three six-month rotations and the supervisors of those individuals got training too. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was a smart idea. And the Wexner Foundation has decided to invest in individuals. And we're very clear. That's our lever. And it's important that if a fellow wants to leave their organization, we're there to help them to their next step. We don't have any obligation to their organization and that's a unique relationship as well. But it does make it harder for them to make the change that they might want to make in their institutions. You've been listening to It's Who You Know, the podcast. I'm your host, Michelle W. Malkin. The Wexner Foundation has a new program for professionals who are looking to further their personal and professional skills in the field. 
As Ruthie and I discussed, the new Wexner Field Fellowship is now accepting pre-applications through September 6th. You can find out more about this program and your eligibility at www.wexnerfoundation.org. Before returning to my conversation with Ruthie, I'd like to take a moment to introduce you to the guest for our next episode, Rabbi Josh Weinberg, who is the president of the Association of Reform Zionists of America, or ARTSA, who discusses with me the relationship between the Jewish community here in America and the Jewish community in Israel, and all the wonderful tensions and joys that go along with that relationship. Here's a clip from our upcoming conversation. That is a, a massive, massive deal. You don't often hear these sort of establishment organizations like the Federation or JFNA and the Jewish Agency openly being critical of the prime minister or right. of the government or the state of Israel. And this changed. And it's something that we're all very, very concerned about, especially when we see a deepening rift between Israel and the diaspora, or is certain people in Israel and certain communities in the diaspora. I should be specific. And so we're working to mend those things and we're working to show Israel or to help Israel understand that these things are very, very important to us as they are very important to many, many Israelis. It's not just about how this plays out in the diaspora, but it has to be about how Israel equalizes both its Jewish and democratic character. Be sure to listen to the rest of my conversation with Josh in our next episode of It's Who You Know. But for now, back to Ruthie. And maybe that's what you're helping them do, right? You're helping them realize that wherever they are is not a place that they can grow and that they can see themselves utilizing these things. So if somebody goes to another organization, do they have to get a similar letter signed? Yeah, I haven't had that yet. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> but yeah, well, you're just starting ask, this, right? The you would ask field. that if somebody switched jobs, we would want them to get the approval of their yeah. family. And what level career professional do you have in this first cohort? Are they all over the board? mostly exec, mostly older, middle? Where do they lie? Good question. I've been saying that we are not using the term mid-career because nobody knows what that means. Right. You know, they say that like 80% of Americans think they're middle class. Like 30 to 50, right? right. <laughs> That's mid-career. <laughs> they are on average about 15 years into their career. Okay. They're not early professionals. They're definitely not entry level. Most of them are in senior, pretty senior roles. And actually in the first class, almost half of them them are the executive, which was not our intention, but they're still at a place where they have a lot of their career ahead of them. The official age range is 28 to 43, which is a pretty big range. And our class falls almost exactly in the middle, the average age there. So, And so is it thinking like, well, you've gotten yourself this far, however that might be, and clearly you're doing a good job in what you're doing. Let us help you develop some more to set yourself up for the next 15 years. That's right. We're looking for a proven track record, but we're also looking for individuals who can be reflective about their own growth edges mm-hmm. and say, here's where I could use a little bit of help in order to catapult me to that next place in my career. Right. Now, I feel like I got a lot of that in my graduate work. And you had alluded to and mentioned a little bit about the expectation of doing graduate work. And I'd love to hear your perspective on how that might be changing. Yeah. So I think about this a lot. I have 
have a, a complicated relationship with it because there's something to be said about dedicating that kind of time to your own education and the things that you can do when you're a graduate student and you can dabble, you know, like I had the chance to work part-time in a place I might not have worked otherwise, I think is really valuable. And to go back to my statement about being a paid intern, it's also a privilege. Graduate school is very expensive and there's certain degrees that you need to do the work you want to do. And there's certain degrees that give you other skills that you mentioned, like being self-reflective or, you know, understanding how an organization runs. So, you know, I think when people come to me with the question about going to grad school, my first question is always, what do you want to get out of it? Is it the letters after your name, which I do think that people still look for? I don't Mm -hmm. know whether or not you need a graduate degree to advance in the Jewish community, but I think there's a lot of people who came before me who thought you did, and those people are hiring people who do. And I think that people like to see a level of commitment that you get from getting a graduate degree. I don't think a lot of people care what it's in. If you want to be a rabbi, you have to go to rabbinical school. But if you want to manage a nonprofit, do you need an MPA? I'm not sure. There are certain classes I took in graduate school where I really learned a lot. I think they built on the fact that I had already been a working professional. I always tell people if you're going to go to grad school, you should work first. Amen. Um, (laughs) Grad school, you will not get anything out of it. And I'm torn about it. And obviously at the Wexner Foundation, we're definitely still investing in that. They'll see that as a committed way to do this kind of work. But the world is changing. So it'll be interesting to see know how that goes in the future. Right. And I feel like there's such a plethora of learning opportunities that I feel like if I took my courses from USC from my MPA and broke it down, right, and took one, you know, intensive course online about strategic planning and one intensive course about budgeting and one intensive course about nonprofit finances, right? I could break all that down and get that learning elsewhere that wouldn't obviously cost as much as it did. But I think the piece that's more difficult that I got out of the HUC side of my graduate work is that self-reflective, self-evaluative work that it's like, how, where do you get that? You know, like how else do you figure that out other than in programs like yours or other kind of fellowships or cohort based things where, you know, they force you and they give you activities and they invest in you for, you know, whether it's a year or three years or 18 months to say, look, here's some feedback about maybe some shortcomings that you need to look at or what do you think, right? Are your shortcomings or what is your vision? What makes you happy? I had an executive director when I first started and she went through the Sella program, which was with, um, what was it called? It wasn't by the arc <laughs> before. Uh, At the time it was, was it Jewish Funds for Justice at the time? I think so. Because they were partnering with Progressive Jewish Alliance in LA. So she goes on this retreat and she does all of this really deep thinking and learning about, you know, herself and her platform. She literally comes back and says, I quit. Says, I need, I want to spend time with my family. That's a priority. I love this work, but it's taking too much of my life. And this program helped me see that. So it's like, how do you do that on your own, right? When you're in your job, you're doing your thing, your daily grind. What are your suggestions? I mean, if not these programs, how do you get that self-reflective thinking? Well, first I want to bring the onus back to the organizations like I did about professional development and say that organizations should be conducting performance reviews of their employees, which is an annual opportunity to reflect, which I do not think the frequency is sufficient, but at least once a year, you should be asking yourself, what am I doing well? What could I be doing better? How could I grow more? I just learned the term from a colleague, grows and pros. What are the areas that you could grow in and what are the things that 
that you're doing well? What are your pros? I love that. I've been mm-hmm. using it with somebody that I supervise as well, with whom I've been reflecting after every major event that we do together about what's going well and what could be better and what are you doing well and what could you be doing differently? And I just think that a good supervisor does that with the person that they supervise regularly. My supervisor or does that with me regularly. And he always says when we sit down to do our annual review, there should be no surprises here because we've been in constant conversation about this all year. And I think that that's a great model and that that can happen between supervisor and supervisee. The other thing that I have found helpful in my career that I would encourage professionals to do is to create a peer group that you can work through things with. In my early career, I was in a peer supervision group that we met about once a month. We were all in similar stages of our life and our organization. There were just seven of us. Each time a different person would share something that they were going through and we would reflect with them and try to consult to them on it. And it was totally self-driven, like a savior for me. And now I'm in a lean-in circle. This is what Sheryl Sandberg started to help women empower each other. And actually through the Wexner Graduate Fellowship Alumni Community, we have a series of lean-in circles that are made of women-identified alumni in our network. My lean-in circle has been meeting for a year and a half, once a month. And it's a group of six women, all again, similar stages in our organizations who come together to give each other support that each time a different person shares a challenge for them. Sometimes we use the lean-in curriculum to explore some of how gender is influencing our ability to be the best professional that we can be. And sometimes we just talk about what's going on in different people's organizations. And either way, there are people outside of myself who are asking me questions about my own work and helping me to be reflective about it because you can't do this work on your own. Great. So let's find another funder to make a Jewish (laughs) lean-in program to bring people together. I mean, I think that's what's hard. I mean, I know I mentioned a lot in the beginning of my first episode that, you know, coming to a new place, I don't know anybody, right? I don't know where my community is. I don't know how to connect with with people that are out there. And it's so nice to have that sort of face-to-face sit down with a group of people that understand kind of where you're at, what you're up to, and the the challenges that lie in that because you can't do that really with your colleagues and you definitely can't do that with your supervisor. My lean-in circle is virtual. We meet on Zoom just like this. Oh, that's great. Across two different time zones. So you can find people anywhere. Done. How do we get this funded, Ruthie? Let's go. I'm all about it. The It's Who You Know uh, circles. Let's do it. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. Well, I'd love to hear a little bit more about yourself and, you know, your work as far as how you stay balanced and how you think about balancing work priorities and personal priorities and maybe how you see this manifest in the graduates that you work with, especially since, you know, they're doing graduate school and they're doing this program and they have internships and all that good stuff. And I know that you haven't started the field fellowship, right? Well, our first class has come together for one institute. Okay. So we'll come back in a year and you'll tell me about (laughs) about how you're seeing them sort of balance their lives. But you kind of have an interesting subsect of Jewish professionals and I'm sure you see the good and you see the bad. Well, I'll actually tell a story from our first institute, which I've been sharing with a lot of people because I think that it gets at some of this. All of the field fellows are amazing, busy professionals with big jobs and lives and families and all sorts of things going on. Before the institute, we let people know in advance when the free time would be, that they would have breaks to do work or check in with their families or whatever. And when the institute began, I very clearly set the expectation that you're all professionals. You know what it's like to run a program like this. Please come on time. Please be present please don't be on your phones. And I said it once and I felt very heard. It had been a long time since I was in a room full of people, Jewish communal professionals or 
otherwise, who were not on their phones for an hour and a half long session in a room. And it was really refreshing. And during the breaks, people were not hanging out. They were on their phones. They were doing work. They were getting things done. But they had a clear delineation of this is when I'm working and this is when I'm present. I mean, I thanked them. I said I felt very heard and I really appreciated it. But I've been thinking about it. It's been a few months now. There was something there to just designating. This is the time when we're working and this is the time when I'm present. This is the time when I'm being with this group of people. This is the time when I'm being on my phone. That's just something I'm seeing a lot of people struggling with. I'm not saying anything new here. More and more like... Right. I feel like we've all been in those meetings where a colleague is on their phone and you're just like, come on, man, like be here, right? It seems like you're paying attention, but you're definitely not. Yeah. It's hard. And I consider myself someone who can multitask and you cannot Mm -hmm. read an email and listen to a meeting at the same time. Even the most talented among us cannot do that. So I think about that a lot, about just being really clear of what is work time and what isn't. I travel a lot for work, which I love actually, because I'm in Columbus, Ohio. We have a small Jewish community here. I want to say a special shout out to any of your listeners who are outside of major metropolitan areas, because I have a soft spot having grown up in North Carolina as well. And that it's important to get out there and meet people and have those coffee dates. And now I try to do as many of my calls, by the way, as I can on Zoom so that I'm face to face with someone, even if I'm sitting in Ohio. And it really makes a difference in terms of feeling connected to them. Yeah, that's why when I do that, my interviews, I do them via video. And every time I, not every time, but sometimes when I pull it up, people are like, is this being recorded? I'm like, don't worry, like wear a sweater and MSC hair. Like it's being recorded, but the audio is what's going to be broadcast. And I just want to be able to see the person that I'm talking to. It helps the connection. Absolutely. Yeah, there's something to being face to face. So I think that that matters. And I do miss being in a place like New York where I can have a coffee date with somebody I, you know, run into somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so- I applaud you for doing this podcast and bringing the coffee date to people in other places. Yeah, of course, of course. Thinking from either the Wexner program or structure that's used or your own experience with your colleagues or in the various organizations that you've had experiences in, what advice do you have for other professionals or even lay leaders out there in the field? I've heard you say that this podcast is targeting professionals of all ages and stages. I want to say to the more seasoned professionals that you should take younger professionals under your wing and to the younger professionals that you shouldn't be afraid to ask for advice. One of the best parts of my first year as executive director at Lee Moon New York is that I felt like I could call or email anyone and say, I am brand new and do not know what I'm doing. And can you please sit down with me and give me some advice? So I had a lot of meaningful conversations that were based around that and then gave me a reason to follow up with someone and say, you know, you suggested I do XYZ and I did and here's how it worked and to maintain those connections connections. And that was a big part of how I built my network as a professional as well. And you don't have to be a young executive director to write that email asking someone for advice. Um, And you don't have to be a young executive director to get the support of a more seasoned professional or of a board member. Mm -hmm. I mentioned before that the board members I worked with at Lee Mood New York also really spent a lot of time investing in me. And that was really valuable. And you also don't even have to be a professional to do the things that you want to do. So, you know, I'm involved as a volunteer at our federation here, which has been a really interesting way to see another side of the community. I'm on our planning and allocations committee, and I feel like I've learned more about the federation from that volunteer committee than I had from years of applying to grants for federations. And also, you alluded to the work I did around compensation, which I did as a student.
student at NYU and actually in my first year working at the Wexner Foundation with a group of other students and alumni from NYU. It was a totally volunteer task where we just wanted to know, we wanted to conduct a survey and find out what were people getting paid in the Jewish community. And if I had known how complicated it would be, I may have not done it, but we spent a lot of our own time in the evenings parsing through data and well, first getting the word out and then parsing through the data, writing up a study about it really for the Journal of Jewish Communal Service. And that was not something that anybody paid us to do or anybody asked us to do. We just had our own initiative. And I think that there's a lot more of that now because the internet makes things so easy. But it's just important that you can do the things that you want to do without necessarily the official cover, especially if you're not doing them alone, or even if you are the way that you're doing this podcast. Yeah, it makes me think, again, we're about to create a bunch of new projects here, Ruthie, but it just makes me think if I right now wanted to find a mentor or, I mean, I could find a coach that would cost me money, right? But like a mutual beneficial relationship of a mentor out here, I wouldn't even know where to start, right? So even if it's some kind of training for our more seasoned professionals, how to mentor, right? I don't think teaching comes naturally to everybody or necessarily thinking about it in that way. So, you know, something that helps professionals understand what mentoring is, right? how to be a mentor, what kind of things to look for, how to help bring up that next generation of professionals. And then like some kind of matching program to say, hey, where are people that want to reach out? I mean, I had this in graduate school, but I'm not in graduate school anymore, right? But something for the professional field, I know JPro is doing a lot of work. They just did a big survey, which by the time this airs will be old news, really looking at what Jewish professionals need. They're really looking at how do we take the coaching and the pieces that we get from these fellowships and disseminate that into the wider community so that it's not necessarily a feeling, even though you're going to put that on your resume and when you apply for a job, you will have an advantage by being a Wexner fellow, not only in the experience that you had and the network that you have, but the reputation the organization has and what that says when it's on your resume. So how do we take those things and help the advantage that one gets by participating in such a program and not make it such a divide in skills, but really being able to take these aspects in as a part of who we are as managers, as professionals in our field, and then how the organization is that we work with and how we can try and change those cultures to incorporate some of the concepts that these very specific programs give our professionals? It's a good question. We also do a mentorship program within the Wexner community that's from our more seasoned alumni to our newer alumni, where the mentors actually do get trained in being a mentor. So you're right that how do we bring that? How do we scale that? How do we bring it to the field? And I think that there are certain people for whom this comes naturally and others who don't. When a professional can meet someone who is like the future them, that is ripe for a mentorship relationship. Like if you were to able to say to me or to other people that you interact with professionally, you know, someday I want to be the blank who is doing that kind of work that I could talk to. That's like mm-hmm. a great starting point. And then to meet with that person and say, how did you get to where you are today? And right. what do I need to know to get there? And if that person kind of has it in them to take that as a mentorship opportunity and not just a one-time informational interview, mm-hmm. there's a lot there, but it's hard to know which of those relationships will turn into mentorship relationships and which won't. Recommend collecting mentors if you can along the way. Yeah, of course. I found that most of my mentors are people that I worked with directly or people that I sought advice from as a professional 
in making my future steps, who I then took the initiative to keep them in the loop on what I was doing or to meet up with them when I was in town or to find out if they were going to the conference that I was going to so I could mm-hmm. see them. You have to maintain those kinds of relationships. They won't just happen on their own. Right. And I think on the flip side of that, talk a little bit about this, the conclusion of my conversation with Sid Schwartz, but it's hard to think about your own mortality and your own career mortality, if anything, and the, the body of work that a more seasoned professional has spent their life dedicating themselves to without having some or a group of somebody or some way of helping not just even just ensure that your work continues, but to transpose your thinking, your understanding and the way that the Wexner does it, you know, in three years, because you need that investment time. It's not just like, oh, you know, this person was a fellow for a year and they were really awesome. Or this person came through my program and we talked about their career trajectory, right? How do you find or seek out or decide that a certain person is worth your time and investing? professionally to mentor them in a way that you are passing on literally like to the next generation, your knowledge, your insights, your way of looking so that that person can say, oh, I spent so much time with Ruthie that I really absorbed so much of who she is. And I bring that into my work, into my life, into my career as I then express those things. I was thinking about in light of my conversation with Sid Schwartz. And I think that's hard for people. I think that's hard for people to say, yeah, I'm not going to be here one day and I want to pass and just thinking that, oh, my, my work has done it for me. So I think that's another interesting aspect of the mentor-mentee relationship. Yeah, and I think there's some people who want to pass things on and there's some people who don't see that as part of their obligation. And I think it's important. Like, I think if you care about the future of the Jewish community and you want to nurture up-and-coming professionals, it's part of your job to pass on your wisdom and what you've learned and help support people earlier in their career than you are. But I get that some people just do their thing. Or they have yeah. Or they don't see it as part of their work. It's kind of like how organizations always say, like they don't worry about succession planning. Mm-hmm. Have time to do that, they just have to do their work. And it's like, well, part of your work is making sure your work is able to continue right. after your executive director retires or steps down or whatever. So that is part of the work. Yeah, and it seems like things are changing. It seems like these types of questions and this thinking is coming from our not only our professional side, but our lay leader side and really saying, okay, these are issues we need to address. And some wonderful things like this field fellowship is really sprouting out that I think is going to help change the tide a little bit on these things. Leading edge stuff and the Schuster and stuff and yeah, lots of other this things. Like, this is like a hot time in the Jewish mm-hmm. community terms of investing in our future professional and volunteer leadership in particularly. There's a lot going on and I hope that something sticks from all the different efforts and that together we're building a stronger community than the one that we've been working in so far. Absolutely. Absolutely. Any final thoughts for us, Ruthie? Well, I'm available. I'm happy to reach out to me. I just want to say that. Yeah, we'll have your contact information on the website. Absolutely. Great. And I think you have to be passionate about what you do. And I hope that anybody who's listening to this is passionate about the Jewish community. That's really what keeps me going and doing this work. And if you're not passionate about it, find something you are passionate about. And if you are passionate about it, then find a mentor (laughs) to get the advice that you need to get you to the next place. And good luck. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Ruthie. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. It was great talking to you. As I reflect on my conversation with Ruthie, what stood out to me was a formative experience Ruthie had on Hillel International's board. There are so many ways that we can nurture the next generation and ensure that their voices are heard in our boardrooms. This experience adds value to their lives 
and to your organization more than you could ever know. Being open to having a diversity of thoughts and opinions and generations and giving levels only serves to improve the governance of our Jewish community. Ruthie and I spoke a bit about the nature of an elite program like that of the Wexner Graduate Fellowship. As she mentioned, to consider this program as providing essential training which propels young professionals up the career ladder, but failing to recognize that this also means there are professionals you're leaving behind and rejecting who want or could benefit from this type of training. Programs like these do create a gap in skills and training among our professionals. And I think we're at a point where philanthropic organizations are beginning to realize this. And even the Wexner Foundation, to some degree with their new field fellowship, has understood that even with promoting professional development within our organizations, the more ways we can foster professional development outside of our organizations and make these tools accessible to more and more professionals, the better off our organizations will be and the more self-aware our professionals will be. This is the goal of the Field Fellowship. Over time, programs like these will absolutely have a wonderful effect on how Jewish professionals view themselves, their work, and their skill sets. We want to thank our podcast partner, Nonprofit Learning Lab, for their support of this project. Listeners can get 50% off any service or product they provide with the promo code you know. Visit nonprofitlearninglab.org to check them out. Our editor is Nick Bowden of Bowden Sound. And you can find previous episodes, guest bios, book recommendations, and more on our website. It's who you know the podcast.com. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful week. Like this episode? Have a comment or a great suggestion for our next interview? Contact us through our website at it's who you know the podcast.com or on the It's Who You Know Facebook page. As always, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast so that others can find us. It's Who You Know, the podcast.